Hello everybody, welcome to the Sports Pro podcast. My name is David Cushnan, the Editor-in-Chief of Sports Pro. With me as ever here at uh, Sports Pro Global Headquarters uh, to the east of London is uh, magazine editor James Emmett. Hello James. Uh, good afternoon David. And uh, making his Sports Pro podcast debut is uh, Features Editor Owen Conley, although he is available on other podcasts. Mm-hmm. Owen, hello. Hello David. Thank you for having it. It's a very proud moment for me. Thank you. That's, that's nice. Um, we are here to review uh, some of the key stories that uh, shaped uh, 2013 and start to look ahead to uh, next year, a year, of course, that includes the World Cup, the uh, Sochi Olympic Games, the Commonwealth Games, and a lot more besides. Um, Twelve months to look back on, but James... I guess where we should start is something that happened just uh, a few days ago as we record this uh, uh, in uh, mid-December. IMG, uh, after a truncated sales process, uh, finally sold. Yes, not 48 hours ago the confirmation came through, David. Um, William Morris Endeavour, big entertainment agency out of Beverly Hills, Um, they've teamed up with their part owner, um, Silver Lake uh, private equity company, um, and $2.3 billion is the figure being bandied around, which is a little bit less than uh, Forceman Little, the previous owner, were looking for. And all sorts of speculation, inevitably, because it is IMG, about what this means for uh, the company, uh, where it's going. We don't know many details yet of exactly what will happen, but what's, what's your best guess? I mean, this seems to be on the, on the surface a predominantly uh, talent representation firm taking over a firm that used to be mm. all about talent representation, but is a, a lot more besides now. Well, the list of sort of potential suitors, um, there were, I think there were sort of 11 um, bids initially, something like that, 10 or 11, got whittled down. CVC, uh, the Formula One uh, owners, uh, were supposed to be um, the leading bid only last week. Um, the early indication is that um, it won't be taken apart. IMG won't be taken apart and sort of asset stripped um, as a, a lot of sort of financial bots thought it would be, all these private equity firms involved. Um, they have uh, apparently indicated that they will... Um, keep it as a whole, keep it uh, with all its disparate businesses uh, together, um, at least initially, um, and then after that, we'll see. I mean, there was a lot of talk. Um, there are businesses within IMG that could easily be broken off. Um, IMG has a big um, modelling agency, um, which would probably, although no one really knows what they use the modelling agency for, some talk that they use it just to supply uh, models for their parties, particularly the uh, tennis party that they have uh, every every year. Is that your speculation? It's maybe my speculation, a couple of seniors. They supply models for their athletes there for a sec, which would have been... No, that's not their business. Highly contentious claim. Not the business that they they do regularly. So it's a we we shall see as far as... It is very much a we shall see, a wait and see uh, thing. Uh, 3,500 employees IMG have across the world. They will, of course, be a bit nervous, I suppose, at this point. But um, for them as well, it's, it's wait and see. And I think the interesting, the first um, thing to look for is what happens um, to Mike Dolan. 
um, who is uh, the guy in charge of IMG at the moment, chairman of IMG, um, a man who has been responsible for um, really getting the, the company into, into ship, ship shape financially, um, uh, sort of uh, optimising their, their tax operations around the world, things like that. Um, and he was really brought on by Forceman uh, to do that for the company, to prepare it for sale. Um, so we'll see. I'm sure, I'm sure we'll get that in the next I mean, couple of months. It, it makes sense. There's a lot of working parts in, in IMG and it makes sense that they give it a year at least, maybe 18 months before they really start seriously thinking what they would do with it. I mean, it, it's, it's a very interesting party to have acquired IMG. Um, mm. When you look around Hollywood, CAA, obviously, are the other big players in, uh, in talent representation in Hollywood. And they are now, not only, not only do they have a long-standing interest in athlete representation, but they've also got into uh, rights arbitrage in mm. Europe with, with UEFA. So there's that competitive element in it for, um, uh, for them, but also, I suppose, just the, the sheer reach of IMG mm. into places like Brazil and India and, and Turkey. So after a year of incessant speculation, we might have another year of incessant speculation uh, and we may well uh, all reconvene here in a year's time and see exactly what has become of uh, IMG as we know it. Well, we'll reconvene in a month probably, David, and, and speculate a little bit more. Oh, excellent. On a monthly basis. Mm. Um, Owen, pick out another uh, story from uh, 2013 that uh, was of particular interest and uh, caught your eye. Well... There were several, I think, that we can probably lump together under the uh, the Olympic rings banner. Um, one would, was the fairly well expected succession of Jacques Rogge by uh, by Thomas Bach, in what I think is a kind of kind of indication that, that the IOC are reasonably satisfied with how things have been going, but also that they appreciate that there are going to have to be decisions made by somebody who has pretty good working knowledge of, of how they operate. Um, and then the other thing, of course, was, was Tokyo. Um, again, reasonably well expected, although quite competitive bidding process at various points during the year. Um, and then the final thing was, uh, was wrestling, which was not remotely competitive in the end, having been very much so for, for several years. And I think um, that is possibly one of the first things that, that uh, Thomas Bach, sorry, will will need to address is how some of these bidding processes are handled. We saw three um, three favourites win, really. I've been quite um, impressed, and it might be a, a communications job rather than reality, but I've been quite quite uh, impressed with the way that uh, Thomas Back, in just the, the few months since he uh, took office in September, has uh, A, been on a, a whirlwind tour and, and met many world leaders and other significant uh, uh, sports executives. Um, he has taken the uh, IOC executive board away for a, a three-day retreat at which they have uh, put together um, some uh, proposals under the banner Olympic Agenda 2020 and this is everything from um, increasing the financial support for um, uh, anti-doping, um, for uh, anti-corruption uh, bodies uh, to uh, uh, undertaking an evaluation of uh, Olympic bidding and the costs associated with bidding for and staging the uh, Olympic Games, uh, even to uh, something that he mentioned 
just in passing really in his manifesto during his election campaign, which is um, uh, the idea of an Olympic TV channel. Uh, he's now commissioned a feasibility study uh, to look at that. I think he's, he's certainly brought a new energy, I think, to, uh, uh, to the top table at the IOC. And again, it's going to be something that will be the subject of much, much speculation over the next 12 months because there's a, uh, an extraordinary meeting of the IOC now scheduled in for December at which many of these proposals will be uh, fleshed out a little bit more and some decisions made. But there's definitely going to be, I think, some, some kind of change or evolution in the way that um, the Olympic, uh, Olympic host cities are selected. Um, interestingly, that will happen at the same time as six cities are already in the midst of bidding for the 2022 Winter Olympic Games, and we'll, we'll probably see some movement on that front in the next uh, year as well. Mm. Classic case of uh, new job syndrome, I think, for Thomas Bach. Yeah. You'll remember, David, when I uh, was hired by you, I worked quite hard as well. Yeah. And that fades, I think, after about 12 months. Yeah, long gone. And then you revert to being a safe pair of hands. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I think um, with the IOC as well, it's, a, it's going to be a case of anticipating the transition before it happens. Not between the back and rug, but between the model that served them very well for about 25 years and the one that is probably going to need to serve them well, and the program that's going to need to serve them well going into into the kind of middle of this century. Uh, London 2012 was obviously a very high watermark for the Olympics, but you don't want that to be the top of the. Uh, mm. No, of course, they have a couple of very challenging yeah. games ahead. Obviously, Sochi is now. Uh, just uh, days away, really, just a few weeks uh, until things kick off in uh, Russia for the Winter Olympics. And there's real concern um, being expressed privately um, by the IOC about uh, the state of Rio's preparations for uh, the 2016 Games. And I think the Rio organising committee, who have clearly fallen behind schedule in a number of areas commercially and in terms of the way that they're building facilities are going to get a real wake-up call as soon as the World Cup ends in Brazil next year and then suddenly all the attention, the spotlight will suddenly shine a lot brighter than it has done so far on, uh, on Rio 2016 and, and it might um, shine a light on a, on a pretty uh, unsatisfactory picture, I think. Mm. Well, then, of course, you've got Pyeongchang, uh, the Winter Olympics in 2018, um, who have, obviously it is some way off, but they have very much dipped under the radar um, at this stage, um, you know, in the process, uh, certainly for the Summer Games, for Rio, um, commercial deals were being signed and there's absolutely no sign of that from Pyeongchang at the moment, whether that is a, a governmental uh, leadership issue, who knows. Um, but in any case three very challenging uh, games for Thomas Pack to negotiate before he hands over to his uh, fellow safe pair of hands in, uh, in Tokyo. Yeah, I think it's probably not surprising in that context that, that Tokyo was, was chosen. I think it's interesting in the context of, um, of Pyeongchang to look at what FIFA did with their rights for, um, for Russia and Qatar with the establishment of this regional mm. package of, um, of, of rights that they've got. Um, I, yeah, as I say, I think uh, I think they need to anticipate some of these things before they before they mm. happen. Well, there's a there's a on the on the commercial note and the, the regional sponsorship um, angle. Um, there is an acceptance, I think, uh, in 
commercial Olympic circles anyway, that uh, the IOC's much lauded uh, top model, um, these sort of set of, of 10 or 11 worldwide sponsors they have, um, and then the, the, the local sponsors that the um, local organising committees for each Games can um, sign below that, um, that needs to change. And there is an understanding um, that 2020 will be the final year um, of the current setup and beyond that they will be uh, working to a new model that no doubt they are cooking up as we speak. Um, Owen, you mentioned uh, FIFA. Is it time to turn our attentions uh, to uh, what's been going on in the last 12 months at uh, World Soccer's uh, global uh, quiet year. body? Well, quiet, year. <laughs> quiet year for football. Um, so, Qatar uh, can't, be, uh, can't be avoided. Uh, is the World Cup going to be played when it's very hot or is the World Cup going to be played when it's simply hot? And I think we kind of know uh, the answer and I think we also nearly know exactly when we'll have a definitive answer on that. But there's a, there's a wider game being played here, I think, um, uh, between uh, Seth Blatter, incumbent uh, FIFA president, and Michel Platini, who most people assume will look to step up from his current role as the uh, president of European football's governing body, UEFA, and challenge Blatter for the presidency. Yeah. That's not until 2015, but we, we've seen some moves in, in that regard, and Qatar seems to be the battleground. Yeah, and I think most people have assumed that. I think it's possibly we can see another one of those years, a little bit like the one we saw with, um, with the previous presidential election, where the challenger is the favourite because... Seth Blatter is not terribly popular in the media, he's not terribly popular in the wider world of football, but then you realise the extent of that power base that he has in FIFA. Um, and also, I do think that Qatar is going to be a real, real weakness for Michel Platini. And it, there's a chance that he could even lose the support of... Well, not lose altogether, but certainly the UEFA, you would have imagined, would go out to, to bat for him pretty enthusiastically, but I think he's, he's possibly... Uh, Frustrated a few people with, with this, but Platini, of course, supported the uh, Platini supporting Qatar and Blatter did not. Blatter not. Um, Qatar is um, uh, is not entirely at fault. Uh, in fact, not not really at all at fault for the uh, the FIFA shenanigans over when exactly during the uh, season during the year the World Cup will be played. But mm. I do think that uh, Qatar had a, a pretty uh, terrible year in in PR terms. Obviously, yeah. ranging from um, simple lack of communication internationally uh, of what it's doing to uh, some absolutely um, abhorrent and, and very well reported uh, yeah. human rights abuses. Well, it, it's, it's one of those things that I think a lot of people discussed at the time, which is this idea of um, using the World Cup as, a, as a, an incentive to countries to change their ways is perhaps putting the cart before the horse a little bit and, yeah. you know... I think there, there, were, were, there were very well-publicised issues in Qatar before. We knew that, there was a, that they obviously have to kind of produce this infrastructure out of nothing. Um, we knew that it was going to be too hot to play there in June and July. Uh, and it's, you know, maybe there would have been a case for, for doing it the other way around. But now, obviously, we hope that, that the World Cup will be a, a spotlight on these issues. And when it comes to building World Cup infrastructure, things like some of the abuses of, um, mm. of workers' rights that have been going on and things like the kafala... Uh, system of of uh, visa sponsorship will be. It really comes down to your point of view whether you do believe, as as you say, and it, it, 
hosting one of these major events should in some way be a reward or whether mm. it should be a catalyst. And I think, um, uh, yes, I think you're probably right. The, the order has been, uh, uh, has been slightly wrong on, uh, yeah. on that one. But I mean, it, it can be a bit of both, but I think the other thing is that, that Qatar hosting the World Cup came out of nowhere a little bit. And I think if it hadn't been so far ahead... Um, then possibly we would have seen a little bit of this process happening before. And I think that's part of the problem for Qatar as well, the fact that there are, there are still 10 years, mm. nearly, until this uh, World Cup uh, takes place, which is longer than any host before has had to prepare, but also okay. be under the spotlight and under scrutiny. Yeah. And uh, I think this is uh, not a year that they will uh, look back on uh, fondly. Uh, and they may be reviewing, at the very least, their uh, their communication strategies. I have a point on on the um, the work that FIFA will have to do uh, in order to come up with a decision of exactly when to play this World Cup in Qatar. You know whether it is it, it will have to be in the winter, the the, the Northern Hemisphere winter, um, either uh, you know early early year or what are the options? Fe- sort of a February. Yeah, or, or November, November, December. The previous, or the, yes. at the yeah. end of the year. Um, I think it will be interesting. They will have to, in coming up with this decision, do something that they probably haven't been renowned for in the history of FIFA, I think, which is um, sort of behind-the-scenes diplomacy. There are stakeholders in sport, whichever way this goes, there are stakeholders in sport who are going to be rubbed completely up the wrong way by this. You know, whether that's the Olympic movement, whether that's American television networks, whether that's, you know, FIFA's representative soccer leagues in, in, in various countries. So the job that, and whether that falls to Blatter, probably not, um, you know, a, a man who, who in his position should be a diplomat, um, who hasn't really excelled at that. I'd be interested to see who, who it is behind the scenes at FIFA who is putting out these fires before they've really started. Yeah, and I think the, the other point that really can't be stressed enough is how much this debate is going to put the club game in competition with the international game. And the World Cup is uh, an absolute six-star, superb tournament that everybody dreams about from, you know, from their childhood. And, and, but that doesn't mean that the reality of putting it on is is going to protect it from these kind of forces, um, you know. And it, it is a really really big issue if if clubs start saying things like we'll withdraw players or you know any of the kind of nightmare scenarios mm. that could develop but down on, the line. On the other hand, um, UEFA have been doing quite a lot of work recently to um, kind of address that um, balance between club football yeah. and uh, international football, and actually their their new week of football concept for their. Um, uh, qualifiers for Euro 2016, you know, these things that are kicking in in September. The clubs are actually um, not too displeased with this because in most cases it gives players a little bit more rest. Mm. UEFA, of course, led by Michelle Platini. Michelle Platini uh, from Qatar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, James, uh, would you like to talk a little bit about uh, a very bitter battle at the top of uh, world cycling? Uh, yes, I can do. Um, Pat McQuaid, uh, the president of the International Cycling Union, the UCI, uh, was ousted uh, this year in September at the UCI Congress um, in Florence by um, 
his replacement, obviously, uh, <laughs> uh, Brian Cookson, a long-term president of uh, British Cycling. Um, and uh, while the vote itself was uh, seemingly quite close, 24 to 18, I think, um, by memory, um, the build-up to it was possibly one of the most farcical things we've seen in um, these type of presidential elections in sport. Um, Cookson um, enlisted... Uh, the support of uh, Vero Communications, an agency um, that we all know quite well from their um, work behind the scenes in uh, sport. They run um, bidding campaigns uh, largely. In fact, they were the architects of uh, Qatar's Hmm. um, winning World Cup bid, wouldn't you know? Um, But um, they ran uh, Cookson's successful campaign and the issue was it developed into a slamming match. Both candidates came up with their uh, manifestos, which were actually, you know, markedly similar. Mm. Um, all very positive things. Um, reform, um, the way anti-doping is carried out in cycling, um, continued commercialisation, put an emphasis on um, the women's side of things. But it developed into into a slamming match and it was played out by a press release, which, you know, it was heaven for the media I'm sure but all very undignified you loved it I was loving it yeah, yeah. Uh, we were all loving it except for I'd imagine those um, who, who had a real stake in it I don't imagine Cookson or McQuaid was loving it yeah. no I'd what? imagine whoever it was at Vero who had to write press releases every six or seven <laughs> hours I wasn't loving it too much either what, what I would say about that though for all the bluster for all the uh, bitter uh, argument by press release I would still suggest that the UCI presidential uh, battle, presidential debate, was uh, a more healthy state of affairs than what, um, quite quietly in the end, happened um, with uh, World Motorsports governing body, the FIA, um, uh, just a few weeks ago, where the incumbent uh, Jean Tot uh, was re-elected unopposed in the end uh, to a second four-year term. Uh, the rules of the election uh, having made it virtually impossible and in the end impossible for a, uh, a challenger to stand. And a challenger uh, did put himself forward, uh, a British uh, uh, man by the name of uh, David Ward, but he found the rules uh, skewed so much against any sort of challenger uh, that he was unable to uh, get the necessary um, endorsements to be able to even take part in the election. And I think for all... Sounds the, like the America's Cup, well, well, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, we could, we sounds, could, uh, we could come on and talk yeah. about the America's Cup uh, shortly. But I think, I think for all for all the UCI went through the mill a bit and was, um, as an organisation, I think fairly humiliated by mm. what happened. Uh, perhaps it, it wasn't absolutely uh, absolutely the worst thing. Yeah. That well, happened. Cookson did realise this, and um, uh, you know, part of his um, campaign all the way through, there was some contention over whether McQuaid should be allowed to stand for re-election. His um, nominations uh, didn't come um, through the orthodox channels, shall we say. Um, and at, at the Congress in, uh, in Florence, there, were, there was a big uh, kerfuffle um, where delegates were sort of asked to vote on whether they should vote to, to actually vote for McQuaid in the end. And Cookson, knowing that uh, to beat a challenger endorses your your presidency if you if you're going to win um, he sort of cut it all short and said you know let's let's just forget this nonsense and let's take a vote 
which was brave, and uh, and he came out the winner. Um, and I think, it, as David said, it, it is a healthier state of affairs than what happened at, um, at, at World Man Sport and indeed at FIFA a couple of years ago. Um, but it's also one of the things that so much of this reportage of cycling over the last, not just 12 months with McQuaid and, and Cookson and with you know the, the Vero campaign as well with with, uh, with Cookson, but also the reporting of um, of what happened in the Armstrong era mm. has revealed how small some of these sports are on the inside, and it's kind of and how you know they're kind of run like amateur clubs, but they have this these enormous amounts of money being invested in them from third parties, mm. and I think that Cookson now will have a mandate to go out and say, look, we need to be more professional about this. We need to be run as a more uh, accountable organisation and he can start doing that and already has started doing that. Mm -hmm. In in terms of professionalisation, I think we saw that with uh, FILA, World Wrestling's uh, governing body as well, when they were uh, knocked off the Olympic programme by the IOC back in April, I think, and eventually uh, there was a huge uh, wave of support to get uh, one of the Olympics' uh, mainstay sports back on the programme, but... They changed their leadership. They've introduced new rules, and they've generally sorted themselves out, which is mm-hmm. something that I, if if there is an Olympic sport that isn't doing that, then I think they've all been given a wake up call mm-hmm. um, by what happened uh, this year. Keeping that theme, if yeah. if we may, but returning to cycling, um, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens um, with regards to cycling's place in the Olympic movement because. Um, one of the things that Pat McQuaid fell back on in his um, campaign for re-election was his position within uh, the IOC. He was an IOC uh, member. Yeah. Um, there's almost no chance of Cookson um, replicating that. Um, Pat McQuaid, of course, is Irish. Uh, Brian Cookson is British. Britain already has um, a uh, almost a full complement of uh, IOC members. Um, and, 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 and Sebastian Coe very much waiting in the wings. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so Cookson is unlikely um, to be circulating in uh, the type of company that um, McQuaid uh, was very welcoming. You know, he's a, he's a charming man and a well-respected man um, in Olympic circles. And he fell back on that position um, in his campaign to say you know, to his stakeholders, look, the Olympics is all important for cycling. Um, he he can strengthen it and perhaps add events. Um, Cookson, it remains to be seen. I mean, is there a, a potential weakness there? Yeah, and conversely, with with Cookson, one of his great strengths has been this extraordinary surge from British cycling in the last fifteen years. Uh, not just in terms of Olympic and road cycling success, but also in terms of participation in in the UK. Um, in terms of where cycling is culturally in the UK. The British media being what it is, success stories quickly become, or eventually become, what's behind all that success stories, and uh, and perhaps British cycling will be in for a, a rougher ride, if you'll pardon the, the expression. Mm. Um, we won't. <laughs> um, that, that will be interesting to see if there is any kind of... Uh, uh, backlash is too strong, but if there is any change in the mood in the media towards religious cycling. Let's talk about um, a couple more leadership changes, one that's happening in February, one that will happen at the start of 2015 but was announced this year. Uh, In the United States, um, Adam Silver is very shortly going to take over from the man he has been number two to uh, for many years, 
um, David Stern, that's at the NBA, and Major League Baseball's uh, long-standing commissioner, uh, Bud Selig, finally uh, confirmed his departure date uh, this year. Um, We still don't know who's going to replace him, but uh, these are two commissioners who have uh, been there for a generation or more. Well, yes, indeed. And um, both uh, both will be momentous uh, transitions. Um, it's worth mentioning uh, with the NBA first, because that will um, take place first, as you say, in February. Um, yeah, David Stern has been there forever. Um, he is... Or, or more accurately, 1984. Well... <laughs> uh, as commissioner... Well, yeah, 30 yeah. years, yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, forever, 30 years, we're all young, yes. we can't see that yeah, far ahead. Yeah, forever for me, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, so he's stepping down. Adam Silver, who has been um, joined to his hip, really, um, for um, forever. Um, <laughs> the transition should be smooth. Silver has effectively been running the league recently, um, the latest uh, kind of lockout scenario that they had. Adam Silver led the negotiations on the league side. He knows the league inside out. He became, you know, this hip joining happened when he became um, uh, deputy commissioner in 2006, which was in fact uh, the same year um, that there last was a a change in commissionership at um, one of the major leagues when uh, Roger Goodell took over at the NFL. Um, but um, although the transition should be smooth, there are cut, well, there are there are a few points. It, it it will be a challenging year. For, the transition will be smooth, but the year will be challenging. The NBA is um, commercial, you know, commercializing even more quite rapidly. Um, they brought in um, sponsor logos on on courts quite mm-hmm. recently, um, which is new territory for them. They're they're bringing in. Um, Logos on jerseys, quite controversially in America, um, but they hope not to cannibalise other revenues through that. And of course, um, they are probably going to be the next major league um, to do uh, their next um, domestic broadcast deal, and um, nothing less than a huge increase uh, if, if recent deals are to go by, would be deemed a success. There's also the point uh, of David Stern, um, there is something a great commissioner for the NBA, but there is something of the ego in uh, in Commissioner Stern. Um, I think the fact that he set his own retirement date for thirty years to the day um, that he took over um, speaks of a man who is thinking about his legacy. Um, he's also not stepping completely away, um, which of course has has been a challenge for other kind of leadership transitions. Uh, well, Alex Ferguson this Alex year. Ferguson, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, he, he is offering himself in a kind of consultative role um, to his replacement. I think one of Silver's biggest sort of behind-the-scenes challenges is going to be in um, taking Stern's advice but, but not no longer being sort of ruled by him. And uh, Bud Selig, uh, of course, uh, uh, whereas with the NBA, I think it was always uh, a given, really, that Adam Silver, because he had been in this uh, deputy role for so long, um, (coughs) would take over. There seems to be a a much uh, wider uh, group of candidates uh, vying for, uh, or certainly being considered for, uh, the next commissionership of the uh, of Major League Baseball, and uh, that will be something to watch. Well, I think uh, Major League Baseball is. 
there are these are two sports that are obviously in the now three big three leagues in the US um, but they face very very different futures potentially I mean base, uh, basketball you think is a, a, a natural for international expansion the NBA is, is still very popular worldwide it has perhaps more competition for that uh, that cool for want of a better word league globally than it did in the 1990s but it's still extremely popular in, in lots of countries it's very easily exportable and baseball actually... less so and probably increasingly less mm. so now that it's been locked out of the Olympics now that you have kind of 2020 cricket in certain territories taste of its own medicine without lockout mm. um, although it will be interesting to see and the, the, the doping issue as well and it, it could become a more and more parochial sport but it can still consolidate and become very commercially successful on the back of that and, and Major League Baseball, um, I think, uh, is is trying uh, to internationalise. Obviously, as you suggested, there are uh, it's it's much more limiting in the way that they can go global. But um, they they're certainly experimenting in Australia with uh, with uh, games there. Yeah, but there's, there's no bat and ball stronghold in in Australia. No, that anyone can think of. No. <laughs> yes, we're we're not mentioning <laughs> we're not mentioning the Ashes because. Um, you know. Um, anything else, James, that uh, that jumped out at you from uh, this well, wonderful year in the sports it industry? What a year. Um, one, one thing, uh, we talked on the last podcast, Dave, a little bit about um, the, the emergence of BT in the, in the UK um, broadcast market, and we talked about their Champions League deal. That was obviously a, um, a big moment, but I think it's worth going a little bit further back to... Um, the work of the Premier League in um, finalising their international TV rights sales, um, a quite phenomenal haul of, um, at my estimate, uh, £2.2 billion pounds, um, for the, uh, three year, the next three-year package from around the world. That is, of course, far more than any sports entity could hope to get from, aside from the Olympics, I suppose, but the Olympics has no home market, um, you know, from, from international ride sales. It's absolutely gargantuan. And a few, um, you know, they are the megalith of uh, today's uh, sports industry. And uh, a few territories uh, stood out. They finally cracked, uh, like the Beatles before them, they've, uh, they've cracked America um, with... Uh, an NBC deal worth um, two hundred, well, apparently worth two hundred and fifty-five million dollars, which is a huge improvement on what Fox was paying before. Um, and and crit- critically acclaimed coverage. Critically acclaimed coverage, blanket coverage. They've brought NBC into the game. And like the Beatles, they're on network television, so yeah, yeah, lots of homes watching it. I think, um, yeah, you talk about an easily exportable product. Obviously, football is played all over the place. Um, the Premier League because of time zones sits quite neatly into lots of broadcasters scheduling it's breakfast TV and kind of lunchtime TV at the weekend in, in the States where that's quite a difficult slot to fill sometimes and it's evenings in Asia and um, here's a question is, is 2014 the next step for the US interest and appreciation of football soccer of the round uh, <clears throat> NBC on board now Great coverage, good time to watch, and seems to be being watched by more people than ever. 
The MLS, Major League Soccer, we know is expanding and, and there's uh, every likelihood that David Beckham will join the party uh, early in the new year um, in Miami. Orlando also has a team uh, coming in and Manchester City and the New York Yankees are combining uh, to bring another uh, professional team to New York. Um, and you have... Uh, the uh, US national team mm-hmm. in a World Cup again and I think we all remember easy to watch the, for exactly and we all remember the success again. and the, the popularity um, when uh, the US last played in the World Cup in, in 2010 uh, well, what it, is the next step? Well I mean we, this discussion has been going on for years you know when is America going to wake up to soccer that it's only a matter of time it already has woken up to soccer in a big way I think the, the maybe the breakthrough I think that Premier League deal is probably the breakthrough uh, moment for soccer in general across the states because now you've got genuine competition big money competition between the networks and the networks are the ones that are going to promote soccer in all its mm. forms Fox recently did the deal for uh, the Champions League for, for a similar uh, cycle um, so that's a huge property as well. You've got Fox will be promoting that. NBC will be promoting their Premier League rights for all they're worth as well. I mean, if anything, MLS uh, will probably lose out in the short term with uh, with these things going on. Yeah, except the MLS seems to be run slightly differently. It seems to be very much building culture from from the ground up and depending on local sources of uh, of interest. Um, I think the other thing with 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 football in the US that we or with football as a wider question. Soccer. Is there a, well, I'm, I'm talking, I'm using the umbrella term uh, football here. Um, you know, the, the NFL is obviously spectacularly successful. It's probably the league that the Premier League aspires to be in some ways. But it's also uh, got this challenge of fewer players at high school level, which eventually could feed into, a, you know, into the fan base at, at adult level. And football, has, or sorry, soccer has... Uh, had growing numbers playing it and playing it more seriously and playing it into high school and college than at any point in its in its history. I've, I mean, I'm not the oracle on this particular statistic, but um, oh, agree to disagree. <laughs> um, but to to go back to the Premier League, sorry, I'm, I'm I'm this is a bit of a left turn, but the Premier League is doing incredibly well at selling broadcast rights and and so on. It is incubating problems at home, however, and I think we we need to address this. And you know its main challenger in Europe now is probably the Bundesliga, which is kind of on the opposite journey, where it's, in terms of governance back home, is incredibly well set up, with um, with fan ownership and and with commercial departments being run quite shrewdly and, and all of this kind of stuff. And what it's struggled to do is match the kind of broadcast revenues that that the Premier League is able to produce. The Premier League is basically printing its own money, it seems, in some of these markets, but you have extraordinary issues at the moment with club ownership. I think we've seen what's been going on this year at Cardiff City in particular and also at, at Hull. Um, you have issues with rising ticket prices which could yet come and, and bite the league as well. Um, so I think they, you know, well, as, as big a success story as it is, the, these are problems that, that it needs to, to well, confront. Well, you raised the Bundesliga um, as, a, as a kind of... Um, opposite and, and, and almost equal mm. uh, to the Premier League there and I think you're right to do so. The Premier League is so far ahead of all of its competition, not necessarily in terms of uh, the quality on the pitch um, but in terms of its commercial performance and mm. that has been the case since its formation in the early 90s. Um, 
it has had one kind of motto throughout its existence, and that is just mama, you know, mm. um, money and um, commercial growth, and <coughs> all of these issues feed into that. You know, the Bundesliga has um, a great governance setup, as you say, mm. it has fan ownership. Why would the Premier League look at that when they want? Well, I think that well, it, when when money, yeah. when money has always been the be all and end all, but there needs to be a, a complete change in strategic and embedded thought if the think, Premier League is going to... I think what you'll probably see, or what you'd hope to see anyway, is, is the two kind of moving closer together, taking the right things from each other's, uh, from each other's approach. I think um, the Premier League, obviously, you know, the, the money in the Premier League is, has done lots of things. One of the things it's done is made one of the least safe places to go and watch football in Western Europe probably the safest in the last 20 years. I don't think anybody should... Uh, should forget that whatever issues people have, you know, supporters have with atmosphere and so on. Um, but eventually, if you have a league where clubs are being kind of run like personal fiefdoms and, and eventually possibly run into the ground, um, and if you have the fan culture that I think internationally people kind of want to buy into, they want to be a part of what they see on their TV screens in the Premier League. If that starts to dwindle a little bit, then then you might just start to see it, it eat away at the commercial performance. But I, you know, I, it's possibly more from a supporter's point of view and, and uh, from someone with an interest in the game rather than, than a pure bottom line. Mm. We we could talk about football and uh, football soccer uh, all day, I'm sure. Uh, but what we well, really we will, want to we talk will, about... David, after this podcast... Oh, yes, yeah, of course. What we really want to talk about is the America's Cup, right? We yeah, really want to talk we about We do. That. Well, this was truly extraordinary, and it's often said of dramatic sporting events that you couldn't write it, but really you couldn't write what happened in San Francisco. I think uh, you wouldn't summer. write it because it would seem just really tired and hacky. Yes, um, yes. Um... A new breed of America's Cup boats, uh, quicker than ever before, bigger than ever before, um, but more expensive than ever before, and the number of uh, challenging teams to uh, Larry Ellison's Oracle Team USA uh, dwindled to three by the time the Challenger Selection Series uh, began <coughs> in the summer. Uh, there was also tragedy, the, the very sad um, death in a, in, in a capsize, um, of uh, Andrew uh, Bart Simpson, a, a British Olympic uh, sailor, British Olympic medalist, um, which cast a pall over uh, events that followed. Um, there were the usual technological uh, rows, and despite a terrific investment in uh, the uh, television product, which was genuinely exceptional, albeit very expensive, um, it did look as though it was all going to be a bit of a damp squib, um, especially when um, Emirates Team New Zealand uh, went 8-1 up in the uh, first to nine uh, battle uh, the, in the America's Cup match itself. Then, an extraordinary recovery by uh, Oracle Team USA. Uh, essentially what happened, uh, and uh, UK listeners uh, may have been fed a story that uh, Ben Ainsley won it, uh, by being uh, substituted onto the uh, Oracle Team USA boat. What actually seems to have happened is uh, Emirates Team New Zealand basically ran out of money and 
in the arms race that is the America's Cup, Oracle Team USA were able to keep developing their boat and keep uh, investing in working out why their boat wasn't working. And uh, they only went and defended it. Mm. Um, now, this has been sort of widely interpreted as the, the making of the America's Cup and now the future is bright. There are still some very fundamental uh, problems with the America's Cup model. The first and most obvious is that until um, the, uh, the competition has ended and you know who's won and who therefore will be organising the next competition, it is incredibly difficult to plan anything, let alone anything commercially. It's like uh, an FIA election, isn't it? It is. It is, as you suggested earlier. Oh, link back to um, each other. But uh, I do think it was a bit of a breakthrough for sailing in certain markets. And there was a, a sense for the first time, I think, that, yes, it, expensively, but sailing can work on, on television. And um, Owen, you're looking a little bit sceptical. Uh, no, 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 not <laughs> at all. Um, I, I didn't actually watch the America's Cup, so I'm, I'm not going to... Uh, comment too much on the, on the televisual aspect of it. But what I would say is that the, the kind of existential crisis that it went through is in no small part as a result of what happened at the, uh, the last but one America's Cup, um, where, you know, it, it, that's kind of the worst case scenario, where somebody just says, you know, I'm just going to make this up as I go along to make it almost impossible for somebody to beat me. And um, I think... Beyond that, it had been experiencing a, a, a pretty good run from kind of the, the early 80s. It, it's a big issue for a lot of sporting competitions at the moment, particularly as they're kind of now in a, a, a wider marketplace, particularly for broadcasters. But I think some of them have to have a little bit of confidence in the inherent appeal of their product. So there's something about the America's Cup being the oldest sporting competition. There's something about it having this kind of you know, challenge aspect to it where somebody lays down the, the gauntlet and you say, right, I'll, it's a, I'll it's take that It's a soap opera. And well, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? It, it is both, it's, um, you know, a sort that these archaic rules are both a source of its popularity and, in some cases, undoing. A little bit mm -hmm. like test cricket, you know, mm -hmm. people love it for its tradition, but clearly it doesn't attract new people in we, as well as it might. We'll, we'll possibly get onto that uh, later you know about how test cricket's addressing that but boxing as well is another sport that this year has has enjoyed some commercial success but the the kind of the nature of it the nature of matchmaking the nature of how these things are set up is hugely appealing when it's the biggest thing possible and uh kind of a, a real source of weakness when it's not mm. um the America's Cup, uh, or the next America's Cup uh, cycle will begin in earnest early next year when uh, Oracle Team USA and the Golden Gate uh, Yacht Club, which is the sanctioning yacht club for the team, uh, work out uh, the, or, or reveal the protocol for the next uh, cup and uh, we can expect uh, arguments and, and Possibly even legal shenanigans uh, to begin shortly. Well, New Zealand that. will be back at least. New Zealand will be back. There's some talk of a Ben Ainsley-led uh, British campaign, or that that will require some significant mm -hmm. uh, funding. And uh, yes, it, it will be very interesting to see uh, where the America's Cup goes next. And certainly, from people we've spoken to in the last two, three years, um, there does seem to be a collegiate spirit towards making the America's Cup a, a more manageable deal between the, 
competitions and you know we actually say we'll see how that develops right we only have uh, a few minutes left um any other um events from from 2013 particular stories that uh, leapt out at you uh james um, well, having just completed uh, the uh, February edition of Sports Pro magazine, oh, yeah. um, I would uh, probably like to cite the example of uh, Mr. Andrew Andy Murray uh, winning uh, Wimbledon uh, this year as a breakthrough moment, not just in sport, um, but in the sports industry. Um, and uh, subscribers uh, will uh, no doubt read the full story um, when the edition uh, comes out uh, in January, David, it comes out in January. Would it be fair to say that subscribers are in for a treat? They're in for a real treat. Um, uh, but yeah, just worth mentioning that um, Andy Murray, obviously the first um, British Wimbledon winner in 77 years, um, a huge achievement and a wonderful sporting moment, and um, we all enjoyed it very much over here. Um, but now the work begins on... Um, or what, what's next for Andy Murray away from the court uh, in terms of assembling his commercial team um, and you know what kind of a, a modern day endorsement machine is he going to be? And what's next for men's tennis? The ATP Tour has relied for the last few years on this fantastic golden era of uh, Federer, Djokovic, Nadal and Murray who is definitely amongst those four now. Um, what do they do next in terms of developing and starting to promote the next wave of yeah. young talent? Because they're, they're, there's the possibility, three, four, five years down the line, of a little bit of a void there. I mean, New talents emerge. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Men's tennis generally has been, has been pretty enjoyable over the last five years, but there has been that element of Grand Slams are kind of, you tune in on Wednesday afternoon and you know two of these guys are going to be playing each other and the other two will be playing each other the next day. Um, or, depending on the schedule, maybe not Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> um, but, um, we can edit that out. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's in a strong position. But as as I've said about certain other things, it's about anticipating the transition before it Oh, and you're our uh, resident cricket man. Um, yeah. We've had two Ashes series, unusually, uniquely. I'm not quite unusually. unusually uh, within about unusually. four or five months of each other, um, and. Uh, Fortunately and unfortunately, uh, two very one-sided um, series. Mm. Um, what has that done? What's the feeling about what that's done to I the Ashes brand? I don't think that the result um, has doesn't, really doesn't done any wrong. Yeah, I think you two one-sided series. <laughs> two one-sided series with two commercially very very successful series, and um, I think it's shown that you know that that's something that's a little bit archaic, but it's it's obviously a very easy thing to grasp. Um, but that it still holds a fairly broad appeal, particularly uh, in Australia, where it's it's still available free to air. Um, but the other thing about that is um, what it's doing with with Test cricket, which is like a lot of cricket, commercially very lopsided. It's very very successful in uh, in England, where Test matches sell out routinely. I think there's kind of there are cultural reasons for that, which is that we don't get sunshine for very much of the year and it's a nice opportunity to sit outside all day um, but also it's to do with the way that it's, it's been sold by, uh, by the ECB and, and by Sky and by Channel 4 before that um, it's, it's very successful in Australia it's successful in India kind of when it wants to be but it's, it's not a priority I don't think for the BCCI and for other countries it's a source of prestige but it's very it's a, it can be a very very hard sell 
Um, you have the, the World Test Championship, which is being proposed for 2017. But at the same time, you're seeing kind of the, for the, the big three in world cricket, the, the games that really matter are against each other. England don't play South Africa again until 2016. They're the best team in the world. India are playing them now, but they're only playing them twice, whereas they're coming to England to play five games next year. Um, so it, it, it is a big challenge, and it's a big challenge because cricket is in this position where it's got this probably unprecedented opportunity to, to grow as a, a genuine global sport through 2020. But then you have a, a scenario where it's, it's quite difficult to get in the club with things being as they are. You have the BCCI who are phenomenally dominant commercially because of the size of, of that domestic market and who have their reasons for not wanting to, uh, to surrender too much of that dominance. Um, and, you know, I, I, you mentioned my, my other podcasting activities. One of the things that I was talking about was in India the other day. For a, a, oh, you did get the name. You didn't want to mention it. Self-promotional plug. Um, was Ireland's attempts to, uh, to get into test cricket and, uh, you know, and to, to navigate the kind of arcane... Um, governmental rules that would that they would need to to become a full member and who it suits and who it doesn't and it's it is an interesting question for a sport which uh, is there kind of a bit of crossroads. Is there a sense do you think that the ICC, the uh, nominal mm. international governing body at least, uh, <coughs> are just that nominal? The BCCI, they are. I mean, the BCCI, it, you know how how well you get on in in cricket politically is kind of how well you handle the BCCI. I think. And even within India, certain power brokers within the BCCI, I mean, uh, N. Srinivasan's had a kind of fantastic year where he's come through this extraordinary story in May with uh, his son-in-law being arrested on, uh, on corruption charges and, and you know, the, all the conflicts of interest that this exposed within the Indian game. And he somehow managed to engineer a route out of this. And, and he's almost more powerful than ever. In, in some ways he is, because you're wondering where the challenge is going to come from. Um, but uh, you know, I think uh, the ICC. It's interesting with the with the Test Championship. They have an opportunity to now brand Test cricket as something that they can run. That they have previously had no control over, really, beyond issuing rankings points and 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 having a, a moderating role in, in tour program. Let's conclude with uh, something to look out for from each of us in uh, 2014. James, you're looking uh, keen to answer this one. What, yes. uh, you know, what would you, what little bit of insight would you be giving our, uh, our dear listener? Um, well, a little, bit of, <laughs> maybe a little bit of insight from the world of sports politics. Obviously, um, uh, we've seen in recent days uh, Vladimir Putin... Um, smoothing the way for uh, perhaps a not quite as protest-filled Sochi Winter Olympics, um, releasing um, contentiously imprisoned uh, people. See, I um, that was just for Christmas. Perhaps it was just for Christmas. Perhaps they just done the real. Perhaps they just done their time. Yeah. Um, but I would actually point to um, Marius Visa um, as one to watch for 2014. Um, Marius Visa, of course, is the uh, president of the International Judo Federation. We all know that. Um, but what we might not know is that he was uh, fairly recently elected um, to become the president of Sport Accord, um, which is not just a convention, but is also um, essentially a union of um, 
international uh, sports federations and Olympic federations and non-Olympic federations. But yeah, they're all in. They're all in the mix. Um, uh, it's it's a very big body um, of members. Um, and uh, Mr. Visa has uh, he took over from Hein Verbruggen. He was running up against uh, Bernard Lapasse. Um, who had uh, rather the, the chief of the International Rugby Board um, and he had rather more conservative plans than Mr Visa who apparently intends to set up um, a, a bank of sport uh, a lottery a lottery of sport and he also intends to out Olympics the Olympics um, with uh, a, a united championship of world championships or oh. something like that and it seems to me that uh, and, and he is apparently serious about these things um, uh, particularly the United Championship um, idea has already been poo-pooed um, quite uh, dismissively by various senior Olympic officials um, not least the most senior Thomas Back um, if Mr Visa continues in uh, what is quite an underestimated seat of power um, at Sport Accord he could be setting the non-Olympic sports federations who obviously want a, a bit of a boost um, on a course uh, against the Olympic sports federations. And Owen, something, uh, something that uh, strikes you, World Cup year? It's World Cup year, I'm obviously very, very excited about it. I think now that the draw and the, uh, you know, we know who the qualifiers are, we know what the draw is going to look like, we know who's playing who and when. That's all very exciting, and it. Do you have a world chart yet? I don't. I'm. I'm, I'm actually gonna gonna hand make one this year. Um, <laughs> with no, I, I might. I might try and get Dan Brown's assistance on that. Um, no, I think the thing of, that I would be looking at in uh, in 2014 that we haven't really had time to discuss is uh, is the UFC. Mm. Um, they are going slightly more global next year. Um, going to some of the markets where their main audience so far has kind of been students at three o'clock in the morning and other people with, with the, uh, the opportunity to stay up at that time um, having events in, in they've had one in Manchester recently, they're going to have one in London they're going to have some perhaps in Germany and Sweden and in, in some of these other markets we keep being told how it's the fastest growing sport in the world or some variation of, of that claim um, we keep being told how internationally it's going to be very accessible and I think we might be about to find that David what about you? What's your... Uh... I was just going to say, uh, Dan Brown got a name check there. Uh, we should, that's, we that's, should... Sorry, that's the sports pro designer Dan Brown. That's not the, not, uh, the not the best-selling but critically reviled author of Dan Brown. That's for your next podcast. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be very predictable, but I genuinely think that uh, something to watch in uh, 2014 is going to be the... Uh, going back to the, the whole idea of soap operas, is the whole soap opera surrounding Formula One. Um, it's been a fairly uh, dismal season in terms of competitive Can I just interrupt you and say something quite nice about Formula 1? I think that it is... Um, this will be a, a, a I think first. that I, I'm genuinely quite excited to see some of the some of the new venues that are going to be coming in the next couple of years. I think having a, a Formula 1 race in Sochi in particular will be quite, quite exciting. But I'll let you carry on bashing it because that's usually my job and uh, it's nice to have a break. Um, uh, yes, uh, there are uh, several things here. Uh, first, uh, in terms of the on-track action, which was obviously has obviously been lacking, uh, uh, particularly uh, this past season with another world championship for the all-dominant and superb uh, Red Bull Racing and Sebastian uh, Vettel. Um, but there are new rules coming in for 2014, which should genuinely uh, shake up the pack. New engines, 
uh, turbocharged uh, V6 um, engines are coming in, highly efficient, uh, which is a nod to uh, the, the sort of prevailing uh, mood of, uh, of the world and uh, also a bit more in line with what car manufacturers are wanting in terms of putting products on the road. But I think as interesting as the rule changes and what that does to the competitive order will be the, um, the changes that we will likely see, I think, in 2014 at the very top of the sport. There's been talk for some time of uh, Formula One being floated in Singapore uh, for about the past 18 months. That was uh, a goer and then was uh, postponed in the wake of uh, Facebook's uh, disappointing uh, float. It's been subsequently delayed by continuing um, uh, court actions um, uh, initially in the UK but also uh, possibly in the United States and Germany uh, against uh, Bernie Ecclestone, the uh, Formula One uh, management chief executive. Uh, things are definitely going to change. There's uh, talk of some Formula One teams being very much on the edge financially and there's uh, vague plans for a budget cap to come in but I think there will be some seismic changes uh, next year uh, in Formula One from, from top to bottom really and we may even have a new world champion at the end of it, who knows. Mm. Can I tell you what else I'm looking forward to yeah. in 2014? Uh, go on. Uh, Sports Pro Live. Sports Pro Live. I'm glad you mentioned it, Owen, because I meant to mention it. This is our industry uh, you mentioned event. Mentioned it last time, David. I know, but we have to keep keep the energy uh, keep the energy up. Uh, SportsProLive.com/slash/registration is where you need to go to uh, buy your early bird tickets for Sports Pro Live, which is our um, one day event. It's going to be on Thursday, the 13th of March. Uh, 2014 at the Emirates Stadium in London. You have to be honest. If you've got this far in the podcast, you may as well buy a ticket. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Industry insight: uh, the future of global sport will be outlined for you there. Uh, we have Casey Wasserman. We have uh, Barney Francis, the managing director of uh, Sky Sports. We have uh, Sir Keith Mills. Plenty more. All the details are on the website sportsprolive.com, and you can also. Uh, subscribe to the magazine, of course, at sportspromedia.com. Uh, you can sign up for the uh, Daily Deal, which is our uh, weekday uh, e-newsletter, and you can uh, feast your eyes on uh, all the latest industry uh, news and information at sportspromedia.com. Shall we call it a day? I think we should. Uh, season's greetings from Sports Pro. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, James. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Goodbye. Thank <laughs> you.